Hello and welcome to episode 210 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we process our friendship after I told Scott I don't like him anymore in our review of Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inishirin. But first, how are you, Scott? You're, you're asking me how I'm doing after, after saying something like that? <laughs> you know, Scott, I think I'd prefer it if you just didn't talk to me anymore. Um, All right. It's going to make for a weird podcast from here on out. Yeah, I'll... <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong about that. We're just going to be talking I mean, we did... past each other the whole time. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I feel like we do that sometimes anyway on the podcast. I don't know how new that <laughs> Probably, actually is. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, I'm doing well. It's uh, it's November. I mean, I guess it was. No, I guess it was Halloween when we recorded our last episode. It's November now. The marathon is happening today in New York City as we record. Um, well, I imagine all, many people are. Many people have probably already finished. I'm just looking at the time. It's been about six hours since the race started, so hopefully people are finishing up. Um, I mean, I God help them. Finished in that amount of time, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, God help them. Um, not to brag, but uh... <laughs> not to brag, but I would have, I would have finished sub six hours. Easy. Anyway, uh, thankfully I'm not running uh, that that marathon. Thank God. And instead, I watched Casablanca this morning, so I'm doing pretty well. Uh, saw Banshees of Inisherin a few nights ago. It's a very nice time. Yeah, again, just saying you're doing pretty well after watching Casablanca on the big screen is borderline blasphemous, but uh, we won't go down that route. We won't go down that route. Um, okay. People know how I feel about that film, probably. Uh, but yeah, I've, uh, I've taken it easy this weekend, which uh, is a good thing, because as I was telling you before uh, we started recording, um, like the next couple weeks, I have something going on, like every single evening so it's going to be a gauntlet to say the least um mm -hmm. but uh yeah i guess that's the way i like it i'm i'm excited to see the fablemans tomorrow early screening of that so um you know definitely one of the most anticipated movies of the year um so so that is going to be a big one i'm looking forward to that and then tuesday i'm seeing Hades Town, the Tony winning musical here in charlotte as well so um mm -hmm. you know exciting things happening the next couple nights i guess i hope it all pans out but uh I yeah i mean also disliking either thing i also feel like the the fableman scott i'm gonna be honest i saw so i saw the fableman's trailer for the first time also right next to the babylon trailer this morning and i think i might have just been in a weird mood but i was like man i don't know if i'm if i'm gonna like either of these movies Wow, um, that that's pretty surprising. But uh, yeah, I think I might have I just been know. in a weird mood. I'm I'm obviously reserving judgment because I'm not very I'm not a very big fan of trailers. But they did pop both of those up before Casablanca. Um, but they also have any position next to Broker, the new Coriata movie. That movie looked good. What was the other one you said besides the Fablements? Uh, Babylon. Babylon. Oh. Watching uh, that watching that trailer and thinking, oh my god, this film's 190 minutes. <laughs> wow. I'm like, let's go. That's that's my uh, reaction after watching that trailer. I was like, I'm in, baby. Um, okay. The one that that for me is like, oh, my God, is Empire of Light. I'm like, am I really going to have to sit through this? It's um, it's so funny that you say that because the Fableman's trailer started. And I swear, at first, I thought it was the Empire of Light. Trailer. They are very similar. Yeah. Um, but, and frankly, Scott, neither of those movies look very interesting to me. Well, I was going to say that the Fableman's looks like the far superior version. Uh, I, I mean... Again, I, I get maybe from the trailer that uh, it may look a little schmaltzy or something, but I, I think Spielberg, Spielberg is a, I trust because <laughs> <Spielberg. laughs> I said schmaltzy. And I know, that yeah, was just yeah, totally. yeah. 
I think Spielberg is Spielberg, Spielberg, you know, eh, whatever. Beyond reproach at this point. So, um, except for you know all those movies that weren't that great that he made. Really, just the one. But uh, Ready Player One yeah. is that the only one you're yeah, you're thinking that's of? The one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair uh, I mean, again, I, I mean, I haven't seen every single one, but that's Crystal's, the only one. Crystal I think Skull that's probably the only one you or... would call actively bad. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Crystal Skull in a long time, so. Yeah. Same. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We don't have to debate Spielberg. That, that's, we don't have to debate Spielberg's filmography. Spielberg's, yeah. We'll, we'll get there eventually. We definitely, of course, will be talking about the favorite ones. On the I mean, probably in a couple of weeks, we'll both have seen it, so. Yeah. Probably more of a me movie than it is a you movie, though, but we'll see. Well, okay, I say, so I was like, the, the trailer didn't look that great, but also, like, I kind of know, like, I feel like those kind of movies do also work very well for me. That's yeah, why I think like I might have just been in, yeah. yeah, I think I might have just been in a weird, a weird mood um, this morning. Can't explain it. Don't know. Who knows? It's fine. I'm seeing the movie probably next weekend because it'll be out here in New York and. I'll be honest, Scott, I know this is lame, but like, I'm just like seeing the trailer for that and thinking, God, it's 150 minutes. Like, why? Why is this movie 150 minutes? Casablanca was 100 minutes. Great. Fantastic runtime. As I, as I make them like they used to. Yeah. As I live and breathe, I'm ready for three hours and 10 minutes of Avatar as well. So I'm kind of a hypocrite, I understand. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, long movies are not going to stop getting made. I'm just glad that these are the movies that are long and it's not again. As I, I think I maybe said this even last episode or a couple of episodes ago, I'm glad it's like this and not the Eternals or something, right? That sure. I know I'm just going to be wanting to claw my eyes out the entire time. Like it's, yes, it's crazy how you feel about Chloe Zhao movies now when you say that. Well, just the one. I'm just, 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 the one, I'm just messing um, with you. I'm sure there's going to be some fat in you know Babylon or even the Fablemans, but like yeah. The overall experience is going to be much more pleasing if you have to watch a two and a half hour movie. And um, yeah, and you know, I yeah, I think I think I've I've talked enough on this podcast for people to know that I probably feel mostly the same way. I still am just I can't quite figure out how how Damien Chazelle convinced someone to make him let him make a three hour and ten minute movie about a type of movie that he's never made before and a length of a movie that he's never come close before. And I don't think he's I don't think he's validated any of that at the box office. He's not like Spielberg, who's at least validated the right to to make a long yeah. movie like that. I mean, obviously this was like pre-pandemic, but you know, he might look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example, right? Which it seems like pretty similar films even have two of the same actors um, sure. in them, and that was Tarantino's most you know commercially successful movie that he ever made. So now, not putting up Spielberg numbers, of course, but um, you know, that's, that, that's, that, like, that's Tarantino, not Damien Chazelle. I, I'm just saying, like. I think he does have some name recognition, not to the level of Tarantino, but like I think even some casuals, I think, are familiar with who he is and, you know, La La Land and Whiplash. And if you put that in the trailer, that's going to be a draw. Um, I genuinely this is a genuine question, not loaded whatsoever. Like, do casuals know what Whiplash is? I don't I don't think that that is a yeah, mainstream yes. movie. I think at this point it has become a mainstream movie, not when it was originally released, but um, okay. I think. I would say yes. People know what Whiplash is at this point. It's a extremely talked about movie. Like I feel like only, with time, it has been talked about even more as one of like the top films of the 2010s. Um, and yeah. so I think so. But you know, there's probably no way for us to know because we're certainly not casuals. So. We're too we're too embedded in film yeah, culture. We're in too deep. Yeah, that's uh, fair. Interesting. Anyway, well, look, I hope nice Babylon does well. Right I hope I'm not not nothing against it. I'm just a three hour ten minute movie sure. from Damien Chazelle. 
that's not the quite quite the same. I mean, Spielberg made a two and a half hour remake of one of the most iconic musicals of all time, and it bombed last year. So yeah. it, it's just like kind of a hard. It feels like a really hard sell to me. But you're right. I mean, obviously, it was conceived and sort of made at the start of the pandemic and then into the pandemic. So it's different now. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll be the last time he does it, but um, you know, they're they're letting him do it this time, and I'm happy about that. Yeah. Um, well, that was a nice detour, Scott. Let's uh, get to our film today, which is The Banshees of Inna Sharon, the latest from Oscar-nominated Irish filmmaker and playwright Martin McDonough. Set on the remote Irish island of Inna Sharon, the film follows Podrick, played by Colin Farrell, a simple-minded farmer who seems to barely mind the unwaveringly dull nature of his daily routine. That routine is highlighted for Podrick by a trip to the pub with his best friend, Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson. But as the film opens, something has changed. Colm seems to be ignoring Podrick, and when Podrick presses him about it, Colm breaks the news to him honestly. He simply doesn't like Podrick anymore. Podrick can't believe the sudden nature of Colm's change in attitude, and at first believes that this strange behavior will pass quickly. But Colm, a musician who wants to devote his life more to creating songs for his fiddle and less to what he deems to be aimless chatter with Podrick, is steadfast in his ways. Despite the pleadings of his sister Shaban, played by Carrie Condon, Podrick refuses to give up his quest to rekindle the friendship, so much so that Colm eventually gives Podrick a shocking ultimatum that will change not only the fabric of their relationship, but of their whole lives. Scott, does Martin McDonough's quieter, more existential follow-up to his Oscar-winning Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, continue to demonstrate his skill in depicting the relationships between broken people? Or is this seaside tragedy just too bleak for its own good? Yeah, quite a bleak film. I think that is definitely fair to say. I I think it's, it's I mean, ban I mean, with Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, I mean, that might literally have been one of the first episodes of our po of the podcast yeah. when we talked about that. I know. I think I mean I literally think like the post and I Tanya was the first episode we ever like proper episode we ever did, but I think the three billboards was pretty pretty soon after that. Um leading up to like the Oscar conversation that year. And you know, I, I it's been a while obviously. <laughs> you know, obviously it's been a while. It's been like 4 years almost gosh, it's almost been 5 years Scott we've been doing this, Jesus. Um and I feel like I've I, at the time, I was a bit mixed on three billboards, and I think that I've sort of cooled in the this was a well made film, but I'm not really sure the ideas necessarily jive for me. And so I was I was like kind of trepidatious going into this film with that sort of being my only Martin McDonough film experience. I haven't seen in Bruges or he's made one other movie, right? I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, Seven Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths, right. So I haven't seen either of those films. Um, and so I was a little bit trepidatious going into Banshees of Inisherin. You know, from if you just take three billboards, that is quite a bleak film as well. Obviously, you know, thematically and topically, it's you know at least on the surface quite a different movie because it's about very different um, types of bleak situations than what Banshees of Inisherin is um, about. I mean, I think maybe you could dig a little deeper down and, and look more at the souls of the movies and maybe see some similarities to the kind of the illusion I think you were even making about um, movies about broken people. But, you know, on the surface, obviously, the flavor is going to be quite different. And I think I, I liked this film more. I think that's the, the truth of it. I as much as it is certainly bleak, there is something 
um, very, th there's just a lot of like really, I think really effective contrasts in the film one between people, but like also two in just sort of the, the setting and, and the theme, like it is a very tranquil, like this sort of fictional Island off the coast of Ireland of Inishirin is a very tranquil place but that is like that contrasts very sharply with sort of like the very almost like bleak um tone of, of the entire film i mean there's barely not i mean there's plenty of humor but it's it's always quite bleak i think um even in the moments of of humor in the film and so that sort of contrast felt much more resonant to me than than what three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri was doing where it was less about contrasts and more about conflict, um, like direct conflict between a bunch of different people. Um, and of course there are contrasts within it, within those conflicts and there's plenty of conflict here in, in this film as well, but it just seemed like that contrast you, and then you place on top the personality contrast of Podrick and, and Colm played by Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And I think that it, the chemistry, the, sort of everything just when you smash it together, like I was saying, the contrast, the chemistry, whatever it might be, I, I think it really works as a film. And, you know, for that reason, maybe first and foremost, and the performances are a huge part of that, I found the film to be really successful in what it was trying to do for the most part. I really enjoyed the first, say, 90 minutes um, of this basically, you know, 110-minute film. I think it goes a little bit off the deep end for me, in the final 15 to 20 minutes, um, it, it felt like thematically the right direction, but maybe not executed in a way that I found as effective as I had hoped, I think is probably the way that I would phrase it. But one of the funniest films of the year for the first you know hour and a half, really strong performances across the board from the leads and the main supporting cast. And it's a movie that I feel like is, is just going to the, the nature of the film and it having these sort of very sharp contrasts and characters and tone and setting and personalities. Like I was saying, I think it really just creates sort of a melting pot of, of stuff that will just sort of stick with you for a while. I think it's the kind of film that, you know, you, you may not love it. You, you hopefully you won't hate it. You, you may not love it either, but like, I think it's, there's something there's lots to think about in the film and McDonough is clearly very good especially in this film, I can't speak to others, of course, but in this film in particular is very good at creating these extremely like well-written or like well-designed characters. I don't even know the right way to put it because it's, it's not just the dialogue. It's sort of everything else as well. Um, going like sort of continuing that sort of trend of personality, you know, sort of driven um, character portrayal. Like it's not just in the words that are said, but the expressions, the words that aren't said everything else about these individuals that I think really comes to the forefront. And I, and I feel like a lot of that just comes from McDonough's capability in writing these characters and stylizing them and whatnot. And so I think it's a really strong outing in that sense. Again, may, maybe from a story perspective, uh, again, I, I might've done, I might've thought that something a little bit more effective would have happened at the end for me. And there are some loose threads that don't make a perfect sense and tied things together super well again maybe not the main threads but sort of some tertiary or secondary threads but overall a really strong experience would definitely recommend going to see this movie it's it is a weird one in terms of like you know 
again, the, the black, and it is truly a black comedy, I guess is the way to describe it. Like it is very, it is a, definitely a comedy, but it is bleak as you were saying. So overall, I definitely recommended it. It left me feeling um, mixed about some things, but I think less, but, but less mixed overall. I think I'm, I feel quite strongly about the first 90 minutes and then, you know, the rest of it is worth a conversation. Yeah, I mean, the trailer for this is kind of comical after you've seen the movie, honestly, because, of course, yes. it, it is very misleading, as many trailers are. But, um, yeah, don't, don't go in thinking this is just going to be a fun, fun-filled fun romp through the, the Irish countryside, because... Um, it ain't. Yes. And if you know McDonough's films, you know already that that's not what it's going to be. But, you know, again, to the average movie-going audience, probably not as familiar um, with the you know the fact that he made those films maybe they've seen some of them um but yeah. uh, his he, he's not there. the brand of the movie the yes. movies themselves yeah. are sort of standalone and here he's reuniting uh his team from in bruges um with yeah with colin farrell and brendan gleason so maybe a draw for some people um but i'm not really sure anyway um i i agree scott i, I mean i think this is a strong film i think it's very well made um i think that um you know, he has a clear gift for characters and, and actors, which probably comes from, you know, his work as being a playwright. Um, but, you know, this is the second straight film. I mean, I like all of his films, but this is the second straight film where he's just gotten powerhouse performances out of, you know, not just his, his lead actor, but the supporting cast as well. Um, and obviously, you know, you in Three Billboards, you have three, actors who were nominated for oscars you had two that won um and here i i think you could have at least two maybe even three get nominated from this film as well so um and, and it would be deserving uh, based on at least the films that we've seen so far this year um i think he does a really good job with like morally ambiguous characters in particular um that was something that we talked about a lot i think when three billboards came out um I think he does that really well. And here there's definitely no black and white as to who is in the quote unquote right. And who is in the quote unquote wrong, right? The, the issues and the people are much more complicated than that, even though they may not seem as complicated. And that's what I think he does especially well here is that the, the script is kind of deceptively simple, right? The way that they're talking about these big ideas is in a very sort of straightforward, direct manner, right? Exactly how you would expect these people in this place to talk. Um, like it's very authentic. But that is what is underlying all of that is like a lot of weight and a lot of profundity to these very sort of simple sentiments of like, oh, well, you know, you didn't like me or I don't like you anymore. Well, you liked me yesterday, you know, just like the, these very simple sentiments. But again, there's a lot that is packed into these um the 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 dialogue and the characters which on the surface you may be you may think you know who they are at first and um but layers get revealed and again that that uh pertains to not just brennan gleason and colin farrell's character but also you know carrie condon who's the sister of colin farrell and then barry keegan who um is another person that lives on the island um all four of them superb um, and, and so I, I think that those are all the real strengths of the film. Um, it's, you know, it's an engaging film to watch for sure. 
Um, that is, you know, one thing that people who, um, you Very know, watchable. watch the trailer and like, are like, oh yeah, this looks like, you know, entertaining or whatever decide to go see it i mean i do think it delivers in that department and you know it's very engaging and very watchable but at the end of the day you know is this a film i'm going to come back to maybe not because it is so bleak it's it's a very very devastating film honestly and you know it's trying to be that it very much accomplishes what it is setting out to do um it, it, but it's like a class. It's a classic example of a film, you know, like The Power of the Dog, for example, last year, for me, at least, where I was like, this is technically extremely well put together. Like, I admire everything about the construction of this film pretty much. But at the end of the day, it just kind of leaves me a little bit cold. Again, by design. Um, it's just not when I'm thinking about my favorite films of the year. I don't know that I'm going to think about this film, even though you know, it could be one of the best movies that I've seen this year. And it, you know, could be a big awards contender. And I don't think that I'll, if, if it is, I don't think I'd be able to sit there and say that it doesn't deserve anything that's receiving. Um, it's just maybe not a film that I feel as passionately about ultimately, because I just like, you know, walk out of it just like, well, damn, like that, that, that really took a toll on me. Um, and, and not necessarily a toll that I, um, want to take, want, want to have taken on me again, um, at any time in the near future. Um, so it, it is one of those, you know, admire, maybe not love types of movies, but like genuinely, I really, really admire the movie and, and, you know, three billboards, it is a movie that people seem to have cooled on, um, in recent years. Um, I really liked it at the time, and I, though I haven't seen it since probably early 2019, um, I don't feel super differently about it. Maybe if I did rewatch it, that would change, but I mean, I, I really liked that movie as well, and it is one that I saw multiple times. I actually saw it multiple times in theaters. This one, again, I can't see myself going back for it. Um, not that that's even a weakness of the film, it's just you know, we're, we're, we're talking about our personal experiences with the movie here. And that is kind of ultimately in, in sitting with the film and thinking about it over the last couple of days, because I saw it a couple of days ago. Um, that's the thing for me, which, you know, holds it back from me coming on here and just gushing like, like we did last time talking about Tar, right? Because Tar is a movie that I just want to, you know, dive into, dissect, um, and go rewatch, um, and I don't know that this movie is is the same way. So, you know, again, I'm not trying to, to criticize it in that way. That's just something that I think people should know before jumping into it, that it's not necessarily going to be the type of movie that, you know, you you run out and tell all your friends, you've got to go see The Banshees of Inna Sharon, right? Like, or it even feels weird to say, like, I enjoyed this movie. Like, I enjoyed it because it is a well-put-together movie but it's very grim. Um, and we need those types of movies sometimes, but just not a favorite for me ultimately. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I, of the two of us, probably am the kind of person who gravitates more towards. Sure, yeah. Like, I mean, Power of the Dog for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Power of the Dog was in my top five last year. I think it was my, I don't remember right now. I think it was my number three, something like that. Maybe, isn't that three through five range for sure? Um, 
and you know in past years like phantom thread was near the top of my list in 27 you know the year that i think this that was the same year as as billboard three billboards outside ebony missouri so it's definitely the kind of movie that i that i do gravitate towards a time and at times but yeah there was something about i think for me scott it's for me it's really the end i think it's really the end of the movie yeah. that doesn't quite piece everything together like that's one of the things about the power of the dog that I think it did really well is that I felt like the end of the film, albeit arguably quite abrupt, I actually think that it tied together pretty much everything in the film pretty well. I'm not sure that that this film manages to do that, but the first you know two thirds of the film are just as strong as you know. Comp- I don't know that The Power of Dog is a comparable movie to this because obviously they're different genres, but you know the, of that flavor of film, I think that maybe that's where I'd I'd point to and poke at you know dissimilarities. Yeah, and we'll get to the ending because it, it obviously is worth talking about. But Scott, do you have any more sort of detailed thoughts about the ensemble here? Again, I think we're really talking about four people. We're talking about Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, and Barry Keoghan. Um, yeah, I mean, they're they're all outstanding. It wouldn't surprise me if they all get nominated. Um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit later on in the podcast about maybe like a little bit of a preview of what we're seeing as the award season approaches. But, you know, if, you know, three months from now, in February when Oscar nominations eventually are announced and these names, these four names are called, you know, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I don't know where, where will Brendan Gleeson be put in the grand scheme? Will he be in supporting actor or will he be in lead? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good question. I haven't, I guess I haven't looked too deeply into how they're, they're marketing it, but you would think they would want how they're uh, promoting it. You would, you would think that they would want, um, best supporting actor, so that you don't have the the competition. Colin Farrell, yeah, yeah. That wouldn't. It does seem to be that studios are doing more of that these days as well. Like it seems like when in doubt, people people get thrown into supporting. For the most part, it seems it seems like not universally true, but it seems that way. Um. So yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, look, I mean, he and Barry Keoghan are both incredible in terms of a support. And if we're talking about supporting performances, um. Carrie Condon, who was not someone I'm super familiar with, but I thought I recognized her voice, and that's because she plays Friday in the in the Marvel movie. She's the voice of after Jarvis. She's like the AI voice in Spider-Man's yeah. suit and Iron Man's helmet. Um, regardless, I, I think that she's great. I think one of the things that we discussed briefly after you saw the film was how and I think this goes to back to the point about contrast I was making earlier is that it feels like every one of these characters bounces off each other in a, in a really effective way. Um, and I think a big part of that is, A, obviously how they're written, but B, also just the, the chemistry and the way they interact with each other. They all have very particular relationships with each other. They all know each other. They all interact with each other by them, like alone and together at different points in time in the film. And there's a lot of sort of... Um, you know, there's a lot of space given to the the actors and actress to really develop those characters and fully realize them on the screen. And, and I and I think that you really reap the rewards of that when things start coming to a head towards the end of the film, you know, and maybe the end of the second act when decisions are being made. Um, I mean, this is kind of spoilery, but I, I think like the the sort of scene where Colin Farrell and Carrie Condon sort of have this conversation about the fact that she wants to leave in a share. And I think that is, I mean, that is a really, really effective scene and it's 
sort of the the almost just sort of like quiet devastation of both of them because like obviously Siobhan is excited it's not quite the right word but is you know really like really needs to leave the island like she she's sort of at her wits end with the way people treat her on the island and I think that it tells you a a lot about the characters of Podrick and and Shaban the interaction but then I think it also tells you um just just how like how dependent they are on each other but also how necessary it is for certain decisions to be made and I think that although the relationship between Podrick and Colm so Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson is, is sort of the most I don't know like chaotic is the right way to put it um just this sort of really most eye-catching and disruptive I feel like there is sort of the more tender um equivalent of that almost between between Podrick and Siobhan who they clearly love each other a great deal they have a family dynamic that is sort of like both frustrating but also loving and um there's a sort of like understanding between them that is really hard to I think completely unravel without a lot of emotion and I give a, a, a lot of credit for Colin Farrell who I do think is the best performance in, in the film um by the way for for having to navigate all these different relationships in the way that he does I mean he's like he's definitely like trending towards probably one of my favorite you know currently working actors at this point um he's had an incredible year between this and after yang and um the batman <laughs> can't forget about that and yeah he just has incredible range um and this isn't really the kind of role that you'd expect him to play i'll be i'll if i'm being honest about it like just not an not a role you expect him to play is a sort of well as the film would put it dull arse and um this guy who's just to totally content with a a very you know i don't i don't want to say anything that I guess would would feel like a loaded way to describe it, but like a very passive existence, um, letting life happen to him on his little, you know, on his little patch of land in his little corner of the world and doesn't have any aspirations to sort of seek beyond that. And I think that he's surrounded by two people who feel the opposite. And then, you know, one person who I won't I mean, feels similarly, but has a different outlook on life than he does in his sort of like passivity. So. Overall, Colin Farrell is probably the strongest. Brendan Gleeson, great. I mean, I feel like I haven't talked too much about him yet, but he really is fantastic in the film as well. And then Barry Keegan. The little guy just pops up everywhere. This guy just pops up wherever he wants. He's got that, such a vibe. That's just kind of the characters he's, he plays, it seems, too, are just like guys who pop up. Like, that That just seems like he's got yeah. that role mastered now. He's just yeah. like the the random town urchin or whatever who just pops up somewhere um, yeah i mean he i guess like the one exception it, to that is you know the killing of a sacred deer which also had colin farrell in it um but yeah i mean green knight i guess we got to say the batman um <laughs> guy who just pops up um what, what am i forgetting scott this happened recently i guess not eternals but um yeah, there's and we're we're forgetting a one or two, I'm sure. I, I was it's a, it's totally his vibe. What, no matter how many yeah. movies he's actually in, that, yeah. where it is that way, it is his vibe. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, he he nails it here, though. I mean, he's a very here. He's a very sort of like Green Knight. Obviously, he's like a 
he's something more sinister, I think. But here, sure. um, he is just a very sort of pathetic character, right? He's this guy oh, who's yeah. being abused by his father, who's the chief of police in the town. Um, and he, um, you know, just is not very smart, right? Everyone seems to be, um, seems to consider him as sort of the, you know, the dimwit of the town, the village idiot, so to speak. Um, and he just kind of seems oblivious to most of it. But he, you know, and as many times those characters do, he ends up being a very tragic figure and what happens to him. And, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, the fact that, you know, he, he feels that that Podrick is kind of his only friend, right? Or at least the, the only sort of virtuous person in the town, right? The only person who doesn't look down on him. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. And then there is a moment when, um, Podrick confesses something that he's done, um, which is to to tell to lie to this musician and tell him that something horrible happened to his father, basically, um, mm -hmm. and, and emotionally manipulate him. And it's that seems so you know, funny. Oh my god! Yeah, but but <laughs> um, Barry Keoghan's character—I I don't know why I can't think of his name right now—but he um, Dominic Dominic, yeah, he. Um, he reacts very poorly to that and kind of basically just straight up says, you know, you were the only person that I thought, you know, was, you know, better, better than, than this. Yeah. And that ends up being the last conversation that they ever have. Right. Because Dominic dies and we don't know exactly how, but, um, you know, there's maybe some implication that this was such a blow to him that he didn't, he didn't even feel like he could, he could go on living and maybe took his own life. Um, but it's just kind of in this town again, which I, I think McDonough does a really nice job of setting place as well. Totally. A hundred percent. agree. It, it's just kind of another thing that happens, right? You know, they go to the store and the shopkeeper is in there talking about, Oh, well, anybody brought any news today? And what she really means is like, you know, gossip. give me the tea, give me the gossip, right? Yeah. Give me what is going on. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, the police officer will come in with reports of horrible murders and stuff like that. And it's just like, oh, OK, um, that's that's some good news for today. That's some good tea for today. Um, that's just kind of the place it place it is, this, this sort of little corner of the world. And, you know, obviously there's something sort of, you know, bleak and depressing about that. And you understand why people want to get out of there. People like Siobhan and even Colm. But to your point. Podrick is just kind of like he he gets up he does the same thing every single day he doesn't really think about what he's doing he just does it he doesn't think about why he's doing it he doesn't think about if there if there's something else he could be doing than what he's doing um and that is where the tension ultimately happens right again it's 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 not a, a hard idea to to contemplate like Colm basically saying well, you know, I've decided that I'm an older man and, you know, I have this thing that I believe I'm good at, right, which is making music. And I feel that I've made nothing of my life at this point. And I'm going to continue making nothing of my life if I sit here and keep, you know, acting like Podrick every day, doing the same thing, just, you know, giving into this dull routine. Um, so I can either do that or I can, you know, cut cut this out of my life and see what happens. But, but ultimately 
I think we have to question whether he really believes, right, that like he, you know, that he's going to be better off and, and he's going to be able to achieve something if he removes Podrick from his life or if he's just kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of self-loathing in this character, right, down to the fact that he, you know, literally yeah. commits this act of self-mutilation. Um, totally. As not, not a normal behavior. As the ultimatum, right? And even though, right, like, again, he says, oh, I'm about the music, right? This is what I'm committing my life to at this point. But he's willing to cut off all of his fingers, which prevent him from being able to play the music, right? Yeah. Just because he doesn't want Podrick to talk to him anymore. But, but again, that's not really the only reason. It's also because... Um, How's the despair? It, yeah, it seems like it's his way of manifesting that self-loathing that he seems to have and that that and maybe ha door. having already given up on his chance having having already given up on himself and him achieving any sort of um you know goals in the world of music or whatever pursuit he wants to have in life yeah yeah I, it's it's a real thinker um i think there's lots of different i mean i think one of the great things about it and I think this sort of segues into maybe the next part of the conversation. I don't know exactly where you want it to go, but I feel like some of like kind of a sort of fifth character of this film is is just the script itself. And I think, yes, it is obviously individuals saying the words that McDonough has written onto a page, but it really does feel like the, sort of the sharpness at times even sounding like, the, oh, this could be this sounds like a play. I don't mean that as a as derogatory. I'm, you know, some of my favorite movies of each year sound like plays. Um, but at times, especially in the first half of the film, I think a lot of it sometimes does sound a lot like a play. And the sharpness of that dialogue and the and the barbs back and forth between them, I think there's a lot to unpack about what is exactly motivate like motivating this sort of derail, <laughs> frankly, like deranged behavior from Colm. Um, also crazy that the town just goes along with it. It seems like mo mostly everyone is like, yeah, yeah, this is normal. Again, it's just kind of a. <laughs> it's it's a town of people they're they're in this island right they're isolated from society they're mm -hmm. basically out there just like to do their own thing and they're not really concerned themselves with with everyone else except outside of you know like what's the daily news right but it's not something that they really think about or devote their lives to wondering what's going on with other people they just there's there's plenty of people I'm sure who are also like Podrick, right? That they just they've come to this place for for peace and quiet, and you know just want to be left alone and feel that the other people feel the same way. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, um, obviously, you know, it, it takes a dark turn, and again, your sympathies like you don't exactly know where to lie, and this is what this is what McDonough does a good job of because. On the one hand, yes, it's crazy what Colm is doing, right? And it's a very cruel thing to do to just, like, wake up one morning and be like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. I don't want to talk to you. If you even try to talk to me, I'm going to harm myself, right? Like, it's like the most severe form of gaslighting that, like, you can imagine almost um, that's happening in this relationship. And, and you know, happening to, to Podrick, who at first is somebody who just, like, seems like he's just not smart enough for his own good right like not that he's really harming anyone he's just um he's just in, in fact he slower. is incredibly harmless 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I don't think it's that simple because he won't leave it alone. Right. Like there is something to be said for the fact that Colm is like, all you literally, all you have to do is just leave me alone. Um, and I will not do this. And he can't. It feels like an impossible ask though. And like the geography of this Island. And, and yeah, maybe so. And, and maybe that is, again, maybe that's part of Colm's whole plan. So, right? Yeah. Like he knows that he's not going to be able to succeed with this. And he really just wants to cut off his own fingers. Like, um, maybe. But also, you know, as far as Podrick is concerned, it's like, well, is this persist- is persistence? Like, is it kind- kindness, which is what he would seem to like to think it is? Or is it like, you know, foolishness to the point of like all right come on man like you need to wake up here like this is you can't you can't keep going about it this way um and obviously oh go ahead yeah go ahead no go ahead well i was gonna i was gonna say i think i think at different points in the movie it's different right like to Mm -hmm. me i do think there are there there are certainly elements of the film that are morally ambiguous on both sides but i really did find myself and i and i do think the film positions it this way relating much more strongly to podrick and Sure. In this in this small town, like the small island environment where everyone goes to the same pub every single day at 2 p.m. for a pint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's the blue parrot now, though. Um, And anyway, everyone comes to the same pub on this small island. They all live. I mean, it's hard to say exactly, but they don't seem to live very far from each other in this place. It feels almost a impossible to avoid it. The awkwardness of it is is brutal. But then there's also these moments where like the human like the natural innate human compassion of Colm doesn't necessarily send mixed signals, but it, it, there are there are real gray areas in where I think if you're someone like Podrick who wants to believe that you know Colm isn't just this like psychotic person who now hates him and wants to cut off his fingers when he talks to him is someone who is is sort of foolish enough to think that oh everything is going to be okay kind of situation and i think i think that you really do feel for that i mean between you know getting clocked by is it i don't remember the police officer's name um dominic's dad mm-hmm. you know the police officer outside the general store and getting helped you know, helped out by him and then later sort of almost having this conversation, but like started by Colm almost in talking about, um, you know, when they're drunk in the bar or whatever, and then hearing from other people that Colm had said, Oh, like that was the most interesting you've ever been. And like, now I'm, I like you, like, I like you almost again or whatever. Like you can kind of feel like it is foolishness, but there's also this sort of like almost innate or like impossible to avoid magnet, like interpersonal magnetism between the two to like, how could you possibly not ever speak to the other person again? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you, you can almost, you can feel that on screen, you know, maybe there's some element of foolishness. Maybe there's some other part of it. Um, Just you're frustrated with him at times for sure. Yeah, like it is the sort of like hand wringing, like, no, don't do that, like kind of moments in the film. But I feel like yeah. you really do kind of understand why he's doing it. And 
I think it's a sort of weird, not weird. It's a sort of combination of like this sort of almost innocent, like um, abandon that he sort of treats the relationship. Like he doesn't fully comprehend how dark of a place Colm has gone to, to be doing these things. Um, you know, he is, he isn't able to access that place until, you know, the big, the, you know, sort of the big climactic moment in the film. But, you know, eventually he gets there, I guess. Like, how far does it go before he, it breaks you as well? Mm-hmm. Almost. Yeah. I mean, sure. I, I definitely think the movie puts you a little bit more in Podrick's camp, but um, there's gray area, I guess, which again is yeah. something that McDonough does very well. Um, I, uh, this is kind of a sidebar, but I was thinking while watching the movie that um, the scene that we mentioned earlier between um between dominic and Podrick at the cliffside mm-hmm. it looked very familiar to me like i had maybe been there uh, but then i was like there's no way that this is actually the Aran islands which is where uh, somewhere that i went in ireland even though it looked like it i was like this is just what it looks like on the irish coast this could be anywhere right but no it was filmed there it was, there, it was yeah. filmed there. <laughs> i just looked it up um, while you were talking and so there's a little fun fact is I- i'm not sure how much of the movie was filmed there because there's a few filming locations but that cliffside scene was definitely filmed there because it looked exactly like you know where i had been before um, have you been to cloughmore which is jj divine's pub no no i have not uh, darn uh, i i i'm sure i have not been to any of the other locations other than the the Aran Islands, but um, yeah, I guess that's kind of cool. It's a shame that you um, didn't stop in at two p.m. for a pint. Yeah, I guess so. Well, my my buddy wasn't waiting for me, but um, that's true. Scott, let's move on and talk about the ending here. Um, okay, before we kind of conclude on this movie because uh, it is a talking point, it seems. Sure. Um, but essentially, you know, things escalate. Um, Colm has cut off his entire uh, hand, basically his fingers off of one hand, he's left the fingers outside of um, Podrick's door and Podrick's beloved donkey, Jenny, has uh, eaten one of the fingers and choked on it and died. Um, And Podrick decides, you know, that he's now going to get revenge, even though Colm seems to show very genuine remorse and kind of stands up for him over what happens over the donkey. Um, He's in full on revenge mode of this, point he says i'm gonna burn down your house tomorrow at whatever time it is um the lord on the lord's day yeah you can be in there or you can be out of the house i really don't care i'm gonna do it he does and he sees that colm is in the house when he burns it down um takes colm's dog um however the next day he discovers that although the house has burned down Colm is fine and he is on the beach um, and they have a sort of final moment of um, again this movie is is basically that I put this on my letterbox review is basically that meme men, of like yeah. men will literally do this instead of going to therapy I literally that thought was, about doing making making a joke about like yeah. that joke in my in my review too it is a would not be the only film. one yeah yeah um but it, it's this kind of moment of like they still won't really talk about their feelings and it just ends up with them being with with Colm being like, thanks for taking care of my dog. And then he just, you know, Podrick just walks away. Well, he's, no, he's, course, no, he doesn't just walk away. He says anytime. Anytime, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. 
and this is after, of course, we've learned that Dominic has died. This is after Siobhan has left. Like, he has no one. Um, and he refuses to leave the island. And he refuses to leave the island. Um, even though he gets a very good offer from his sister, right? Like, that, hey, there, yeah. there's room over here for you. Um, his beloved Jenny isn't isn't even around anymore. You know, he has no reason to stay. Yeah. What do you think? What, what do you make of all this, Scott? What do you think McDonough is trying to say, if anything, here? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll be honest, Scott. I, I kind of think one of the things that he's trying to say is exactly kind of what you sort of half meme, half described there is that. Yeah. I think a lot of people are filled with whether it's despair, whether it's rage, sometimes it's both. And it's it's self like their level of almost for the lack of a way to put it like their level of commitment to that is toxic and debilitating and sort of you know deaths it is a it is a vicious cycle I guess is a is a way to describe it you're like Colm is is I mean I'd argue Colm is so depressed that he you know eventually go like brings up like you said brings up this ultimatum does this crazy thing and rather than just change his life. He's trying to basically force other people into the life that he wants. And that creates a toxic environment. It's obviously it is extreme what happens and and maybe what happens is a bit unrealistic and almost unlifelike in that he cuts off his fingers and he throws them into his yard and his donk and then you know Jenny eats them and Jenny dies or whatever. Like that is obviously quite a far-fetched situation. But I think the the point still holds that it is this sort of vicious cycle of like. You pass that despair, that depression, that rage on to the next person. And it, it is a vicious, it is a vicious cycle. People in this situation don't necessarily want or don't feel like they can help themselves. They feel caught in the situation and and it creates, you know, maybe not this specific circumstance, obviously, but you know, through sort of I don't know what's the right word, um, inductive reasoning, I guess, is sort of the from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. Like it, it creates this situation where where these types of relationships almost become inescapable where you're in this sort of dance, if you will, um, of depression and hurt and rage. Yeah. And it's really hard to escape it. Um, even when presented different outs um, of it, if you're in the case of, I mean, you can't, we don't really know what Colm is sort of presented with, but we know Padraig, again, what you just described has an out to the situation. Um, you know, the, the, scenario so that that's like the central thing i mean obviously there is the stuff with dominic um it's hard for me to really put my finger on exactly what the ultimate goal beyond what you already described for dominic's um sort of death in the story it feels like there should be something more like it feels like it should fit into this sort of narrative of of vicious cycle and i think you could maybe argue he's another like collateral damage really yeah that's what I was going to say. Like, maybe you could argue he's collateral of this, of of the choices of Colm and and Padraig. I don't know if I mean I, that that read is is fine. Maybe I would just want something more out of that. Like maybe I'd want some more agency um, for Dominic in the film than that. But maybe that is just what it is. I mean, I I discussed with you off air that I didn't really totally vibe with how that arc ended. I think what you what you said in our chat and also what you've said on here makes sense to me, but I think maybe I just wanted something a little bit more in that. Um, and then the final part is just, we haven't talked about this at all, but I think I, I, I sort of would be remiss to not bring it up. 
I, I'm not sure what's going on with the old woman in this movie. There's this sort of old woman whose name I think is Mrs. McCormick, who mm-hmm. we meet early in the film that Shaban has over for like dinner and gossip. I don't know exactly what they're Basically, doing yeah. in the house. But then this woman, she's not like a town pariah. Like, like people a, people don't want to talk to her. She's a type figure. Yeah. yeah, she's like an old crone kind of figure. Um, you know, if this were a Shakespeare, she'd probably be like a like a hag or a witch of some sort. Um, and I have no idea what's going on with this character and this story. But she's the one who sort of shows Dominic's dead body to his father at the end of the film. She's sort of the perspective that we get going into the final scene where she walks up to the burned out house of Colm and she sort of sits in this rocking chair outside the house and looks down on the beach where Padraig and Colm have this conversation. It's just like very strange to me. I don't know what the purpose of it is unless it's just some sort of like thematic flagging that this is some sort of like strange, like tragic fable. I'm not 100% sure what's going on with it, but. All, yeah, all I can make of it is like, the the consequences of the choices you make are going to just follow you everywhere you're not really going to be able to avoid them because she just keeps popping up you know at random times in the movie and is this sort of like vaguely sinister figure but i don't know definitely he was going for at all but another thing i think worth mentioning scott is that we get several times in the movie that um the there's a civil war going on over on the mainland and like we see like mm-hmm. gunshots cannon and fire, like, yeah. yeah cannon fire right we overhear various remnants of that going on and they just they sort of talk about it again this very matter of fact like huh you know well that's going on like hope it's over soon you know what they're really fighting about no no they'll they're they'll they're always fighting you know basically just that sort of attitude about it which I think is interesting sort of context for, again, the relationship between these two guys and what you're talking about with the ending of like, you've gone to these insane lengths and for what, right? Like, yeah. what, what have you really gained from it? And I, I imagine McDonough feels the same way about, you know, war in general. Conflict. I don't think that this yeah. is meant to be, yeah, you know, a specific war even. I think that's kind of the point is that it's just a vague non-specific conflict that's going on. Um I, I think I think maybe maybe more like specifically it's on. like any sort of infighting, right? Like yeah. I, I think it is particular that it is like the Irish Civil War as opposed sure, to like World War One. Over religion, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. I I think that it's like this notion of like you should you should be friends. Like you should be mm-hmm you should you should feel a sense of camaraderie with each other like you have the same lived experiences like literally you live in the same place um and yet you let these silly things drive you to conflict because why i mean we, we can sit here and say the reasons why it's because it's because padrick won't like keeps talking to him and he doesn't want him to and you know padrick thinks that colm killed his donkey like we can list reasons why but like is that really what's going on and i think that i think to your point maybe this is where you're going the Andy makes that clear because it's like at the end Brendan Gleeson's character, calmly, like he's like, so you know, this is over now, right? That you burned down my house, and Padraig's like, no, it's not over. No. Yeah. Um. So I th- I thought that was even though it's like very sparingly referred to in the movie, I thought that was like a good, yeah. good way of contextualizing, g- giving it some larger context. I always like movies that like take a individual, very intimate sort of um 
conflict relationship whatever and like basically that individual relationship is a metaphor for something that has historical significance like that's a kind of a storytelling device that i always appreciate in movies maybe mcdonald's um, really doesn't like the ira well he he doesn't like the ira i i am sure he doesn't he doesn't like police like this is very clear <laughs> now from his movies that he hates yeah. the cops um certainly he's a big a cap guy and from here you know the cop is arguably the worst person in this movie um easily maybe not even arguably yeah yeah um well i will but, say this a, di a different kind of messed up yeah everyone yes. else in the film that seems sinister is not the right word but less excusable Le less uh less less sympathetic or less empathetic but the town lets him get away with it too i think is like kind of heavily implied so he's got the tea um, he does uh scott anything else worth mentioning here before we sort of move into our wrap-up uh a good dog in this film a very good dog. Sure. I know you don't care about that, so I just wanted to throw it out there. Also, Jenny, good donkey. Companion. Great donkey. Just also wanted in the house. Companion, yeah. Honestly, here's my hot take on this film, Scott. I think I think Podrick should blame his sister for not letting the donkey go inside the house. Wouldn't have eaten the fingers if the donkey was inside the house. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, Maybe that's he probably go... how he's going to rationalize it to himself. I mean, I think next stop he's going to the island and burning down his sister's house. That's my uh, <laughs> that's my head cannon. For the Banshees too. For the sequel. Uh, yeah, you may be right. I, I, I will say, you know, we we've we've sort of um focused in on the hopelessness of the film, which understandably so, because I think that is the note that you're left on. But it does have plenty of comedy in it. And oh yeah, again, we, we really they, have not done this this film's comedy justice at all. It is it is a hilarious film. Yeah, very much so in the in the first part of the film for sure um he does have a gift for for black comedy i mean even three billboards had its humorous moments right um it's something he does that gallows humor very well and um certainly a lot of people in my theater appreciated that and you know just the the dialogue and you know i mentioned the matter of fact and it's sort of the repetitive and very quick way that people will talk he's able to you know yep. get some comedy and stuff out of that and then just sort of the local the local color right of the these strange sort of yeah. people in this isolated environment. Um, he he does really use like the 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 locality of it for sure. Like mm -hmm. the like the into like the pronunciations. Like he really tells people to lean into the Irish accent. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the number of times people were just laughing every time Colin Farrell said just feckin'. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I so think good. that was obviously deliberate, but um, yeah. Yeah, you, you will laugh in this film for sure. Just be warned that you it's are great. also going to to feel pretty pretty glum when it is over, probably. Yeah. I will say one last thing. I think I, this is the last thing I have to say at least. And you mentioned like we've talked about sort of the grim, bleak outlook of the film. I think that there's also a read of the movie that's that or a complimentary like sort of like attack on read of the film where you know <laughs> Carrie Condon character Siobhan you know Patrick's sister decides to help herself like decides that rather than continue to stay in this place that is causing her despair that is causing her this depression she's gonna leave like she's gonna change her circumstances rather than trying to change the people in the circumstances like so there's hope you know, there like yeah. Colm like there's hope like if you are able to again I, I think it's a complicated it's, it's complicated right because 
you know, so much of despair and depression is about not really feeling able or, or whatnot to change your circumstances. That's such a big part of it. Um, even separate from the sort of like, I don't want to say toxic masculinity, but that maybe there's a read of this film that is like toxic masculinity and, and, um, you know, men don't, can't have emotions kind of, kind of read of the film. But if you're able to sort of motivate yourself to help yourself out of these situations, you can do it. Cause I mean, I think that letter that Siobhan sends to him and he reads at the end of the film, I mean, that is, that is there's a lot of hope in that. It's, it's kind of this moment where you also be like, look how easy in the grand scheme of things it would be to just change things. Mm -hmm. um, but instead you walk down the road and you burn a house down instead. Um, it's it's it, I think that there is a read here that says that's not completely hopeless. But ultimately, sure. your main characters here. Aren't able to motivate themselves to do that. Yeah. Favorite scene or moment, Scott? It's going to be the scene in the pub for me um, when Colm is sort of. almost He's not rubbing it in Padraig's face, but he's like clearly just having a good time not talking to Padraig and he's sitting with. The police officer who it, it it sort of implied that like everyone's like kind of friends with the police officer, even though we all know he's like kind of a D bag. Um, and Padraig sort of just drunkenly goes up and just sort of yells at first just at the police officer. He is not engaging with Colm um, until Colm sort of almost says something to him and then it sort of escalates from there. That was a really great scene. I think you sort of just get everything in one because you have Dominic there. You have Siobhan at the end of the scene. Of course, you have Padraig and Colm. Um, the writing is is sharp, like you were saying, sort of the tete-a-tete -tete of the back and forth, um, really fast pace is good. And again, that the pub, the sort of production design of the pub, the set is really, it gives a really rich feeling, I think, to everything that's happening around it and um, really sort of encapsulates a lot of the things that I really liked about, about the film. And it's funny. It's a funny scene too. There's a lot of, there's sure. a lot of, on the nose humor um, in that scene. Yeah, I really like the scene after um, Podrick has been beaten up by the police officer and Colm sort of recognizes this and um, basically helps him up and drives his horse basically with him yeah. back towards the the town and, or you know, back towards where they live. And yeah. you think that it's kind of, okay, well now, here's a moment of, of solidarity and it is to yeah. some extent humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's short lasting, right? Because they get to like very literally a fork in the road where I guess, <laughs> yeah. um, Colm lives on one fork and, um, Padraig lives on the other and yeah. uh, Colm just hops out of the carriage and starts walking down the other way. Um, and there's really, there's not a, a word said again, which, which gets to the whole, men cannot talk about their feelings sort of thing. Yep. Um, and it's a beautiful sort of visual um, sequence that is also, you know, sad and gets at the the fact that this relationship will probably never be repaired, whether yeah. Padraig can see it or not. Um, Unfortunately. All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give uh, the Banshees of Inisherin out of 10? 8.4. Yeah, I'm going 8.5. Um, right there with you. Um, again, very, very well made, well acted. I definitely want this movie to get multiple acting nominations based on the films I've seen so far. Um, film, 
just not the type that I will always go back to, which is why I, I can't rate it even higher than that. But um, if, if you prepare yourself accordingly, um, it's, it's a very worthwhile experience. Absolutely. Um, all right, Scott, uh, that'll do it for our review of the Banshees of Inisharan. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back with award season kicking off, we are going to talk, uh, you know, very cautiously, of course, because it's still early, but we were going to talk um, some about uh, what we may see um, throughout Oscar season, throughout all of award season, um, as we look towards the Oscars and preview some of the major categories. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before the break, I alluded to the fact that, um, you know, it's only early November, but why not just start talking about the Oscars? Um, It's never too early, right? Um, No, it's definitely too early. Um, So you'll have to take uh, some of what we say here with a grain of salt, because ultimately the, the predictions and everything, as we know, often look very different when all is said and done. Um, than they do at, at this particular time of the year. But still, you know, worth looking at for a possible outlook of what we're going to get. Scott, in the best picture category, um, The Fablements right now is the movie that is leading the pack that has the best odds, that is, you know, predicted at the top of the pack. Perhaps not a surprise. It is um, from a, you know, extreme, extremely decorated and accomplished filmmaker in Steven Spielberg. Um, it is a movie about movie making, right? And that seems to take a very sentimental and positive view of movie making, um, something which certainly won't be lost on um, the Academy. You know, it does follow in the footsteps of movies like we were kind of discussing earlier, like Belfast, right? Which, you know, was nominated for Best Picture last year. Um, Roma it did blank well. at the Oscars, though. It did, yeah. Uh, it won. It won a screenplay, but um, it. That's true. Yeah. It. Uh, it yes. It, it didn't win any of the, the truly big ones, but um, you know, you have you had Belfast, you had Roma, which you know won a couple of Oscars as well, um, and you know even Bardo this year. Uh, we don't really know how Bardo is going to do. It. It might. Uh, it seems like its stock is fading a little bit, despite being from you know, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari too, but hasn't opened wide yet. So we'll see what happens there is coming on Netflix, I believe. So um, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens there, but the Fableman's top of the heap right now, followed by everything everywhere, all at once women talking, the Banshees of Anna Sharon, Avalon, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick being the top candidates there. Um, not a whole lot of surprises, I guess. Um, you know, early on, um, Top Gun Maverick getting, you know, we would expect to get the sort of um, Avengers. Uh, well, I guess Avengers didn't get nominated. <laughs> that was the, the campaign, but Black Panther getting nominated for Best Picture. Um, you know, that sort of occupy that sort of slot, maybe of a film, a, a very popular film that also is able to cross over and get recognition. And, and frankly, it would deserve it, right? Um, 
you know, we both loved Avengers Endgame as well, but I think this is an even better film than that. And, um, you know, if, if any popular film is going to, you know, get its way in there into the um, best picture race, I cannot think of a better um, example of one of, of one for it to happen to the Top Gun Maverick because it is one of the best blockbusters of the last decade, if not of all time. Um, I mean, the crazy part is that it's up against another Black Panther movie, which was actually nominated for Best Picture and sure. Avatar 2. Avatar. I don't yeah. believe Avatar was nominated for Best Picture back in 2009. Oh, yeah, but... it, it definitely was. Yeah. Oh, it was? I mean, okay. The, there you the go. race for Best Picture that year was between Hurt Locker and Avatar. Like That's Avatar, yeah, yeah, yeah. you would say, probably came second place. But it was by no means a given that it was going to lose. Um you know, everything, everywhere, all at once, you know, is right there in number two, um, Scott, and, and you know, speaks to a few things, I guess. Number one, the the fact that, you know, an, an independent film, I guess, can still capture the attention of um, the mainstream, um, right? Because this film would not be where it is if it was not for the massive support that it has gotten from the general movie going public right it's the most successful film that a24 has ever had um it's you know it, it has achieved a level of financial success that independent films rarely do and especially nowadays right like uh, you, you you don't see the kind of numbers um that it's putting up nowadays for most movies let alone independent films um and so even though i think you and i are not quite as high on it um as you know the, the average person is certainly not as like the letterboxed average rating would suggest um it is a great story right that gives me hope for the future um that something like so original because it is such an original film honestly like you, that is one sure. thing you can't say about it um is that it's not original it can still you know have this sort of cross appeal of capturing again the the popular movie going public and, you know, the, the Academy, the prestige audiences, um, you know, the people who are looking more at the craft aspects of movies. Um, it doesn't make any sense either to me because this film is like easily the most genre film in the, of the ones we're discussing, like even more so than Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Even more so than Avatar two or, Black Panther 2 like this film has people trying to jump it's on a, a dildo shaped movie. paperweight yeah. like in a, in a scene we have people with hot dog fingers a rat controlling so I mean ratatouille style I guess Rakakui. yeah, rat, yeah. Uh, raccoon yeah not a rat but yeah, um, yeah. it's just yeah. it's wild that this would I mean it's I mean it's I think it's awesome not because I think it's one of the best movies of the year which I I don't think it's one of the best movies of the year. Yeah. But it's awesome that that a movie like this could be in the conversation and it just makes me scratch my head and wonder why can't other movies of a sim of a similar genre-ness also be considered. Yeah, I mean I do think there is sort of a groupthink element to it because like Oh, of course. Yeah. Even before this movie came out like the review, the early reviews were just like off the charts. Like this is one of the greatest films ever made. Like legitimately, that is what people were saying before this movie came out. Critics were saying this. And I think it caused people to have, you know, 
elevated expectations or at the very least pay 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 attention to the film when they otherwise would not have and you know found themselves rewarded by something so unique right something that they've never seen before and then the fact that everyone was coming out of this thing being like oh i loved it i loved it i loved it a again the the group thing sets in and people go and watch it and even though they probably understand that it's super weird and that it is much more off kilter than what they would normally see. It's like, well, everyone loved it. So, you know, I, I it's okay for me to love it too. Right. Um, and you know, not, that's not to be overly cynical about it, but I do wonder, we have to be cynical about the Oscars. I do wonder, you know, are all of the Academy members watching this movie or is it more a case of, you know, my, my neighbor loves this movie. My, you know, <laughs> people at my book club love this movie. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, even yeah, though I, mean, I thought it was weird that they had hot dog fingers, like everyone loves this movie. So I'm going to just give it. A yeah. I mean, brilliant job by the Daniels, a 24, everyone involved of marketing this film. And I think creating a really compelling narrative about, you know, diversity in cinema. I mean, you have Michelle Yeoh and, Kehe Kwan. And I mean, it's, I, it seems like the conversation around Stephanie Hsu is dead at this point, but that those two specifically Michelle Yeoh and Kehe Kwan. I mean, they've created a very compelling narrative about these sort of almost like Hollywood outsiders, almost um, just like the Daniels, just like, I mean, a 24 is not a Hollywood outsider, I guess at this point, but they're not, they're not the big studios. Um, and yeah. I think they've created a really successful narrative about incredible movies come from, these non-traditional places. And I think they've, they've done a really good job of pushing that narrative. And I think they're right. I think that they're absolutely accurate. Um, and I, and I am far too cynical to believe it will, it, that, that will continue like that sort of overarching message would, would transcend this particular award season and this particular movie. I'm way too cynical to think that that would be the case, but it is refreshing that a movie could like this could be nominated um, at the very least even if it wouldn't be my first choice, even in a year like in even in even this year, it wouldn't be my first choice. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, and then, you know, you do have the more traditional fair, Oscar fair outside of, you know, the everything everywhere is in Top Guns. You have women talking, you have the Banshees of Inisher, and you have Babylon, Tar, The Whale, She Said, you know. Elvis, all unfortunately, movies. traditional Oscar fair. Yeah, that Elvis is in the 12 slot now of what I'm looking at, but. Um, gotcha. But yeah, no, th these are the types of movies which it, this was always the goal, right? To to be here at the Oscars and Best Picture nominated. Sure. And, um, that's what they have their sights firmly set on. And, and you know, thankfully, Scott, The Banshees of Inisherin, obviously we both think is very good. Tar, we're both extremely high on. Um, yeah. Women Talking, I know you enjoyed, Scott. I can't imagine I'm not going to enjoy it. Um, Grayscale, baby. Yeah. Again, Babylon is a film I think I'm going to love. The The Whale is the one, The Whale and She Said are probably the ones where I might raise my eyebrows a little bit. I'm not a Darren Aronofsky fan. Um, I'm really surprised The Whale is in that conversation. I, I feel like people are, everyone's saying Brendan, Brendan Fraser, good movie, bad. I feel like that's what the reviews I had seen said. Well, bad movies get nominated for Best Picture all the time. But um, yeah, fair enough. It's in the eight slot, so there's. It's by no means a guarantee that it's going to stick around. Um, where is my boy? Where Where is Benoit Blanc in this? Where is Glass Onion? Glass Onion's at number fifteen, Scott. Um, okay, 
time. It hasn't it hasn't come out yet, and maybe when it does, the you know the the hype is going to subside a little bit for everything other than Brendan Fraser's performance, because you do have movies already like Empire of Light, for example, or Bardo, right? Which you would have looked at, uh, or even White Noise, which you would have looked at and said, "Oh, these are surefire nomination, you know, Best Picture nominees." But they're already fading because the they haven't even been released and they're dead. They haven't even been released, but they're already yeah. fading because the reaction has been muted. Lukewarm in the case of something like um, White Noise to straight up poor in yeah. the case of a film like Bardo or Empire of Light or The Sun. Right. Florian Zeller's movie has also been pretty panned. Um, has it? Re- uh, it? I mean, I believe you. Yeah. I haven't looked at this. It has it really? Yes. That's shocking. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And obviously Amsterdam as well. I mean, it's at twenty. <laughs> it's at twenty five. I mean, that just incredible. Like it. That, that's at twenty five. Amsterdam it's has come out. Incredible right? that that at twenty five though. It's a movie that you would have said before the year, like, oh, that's absolutely in, but the reviews yeah. have tanked it. So reviews can do that, right? And and sure. perhaps the whale will be the next one to go. But it does. I think it is clinging on because of Brendan Fraser's performance. Whereas these other movies don't seem to have any sort of redeeming qualities about them from what the reviews are suggesting. I mean, maybe Hugh Jackman giving a good performance of the sun, but isn't he I like one it. of the favorites for an, a nomination? I think so at this point. Yeah. Um, I think so, but interesting. Anyway, that's best picture, Scott, just to sort of speed run on the other categories. Um, okay. You know, the best director, as you would expect, kind of follows in the best picture. Um, line at, at this point spielberg top of the heat followed by sarah Pauly for women talking sure. daniel kwan and daniel schneider for everything everywhere damien chazelle for babylon and todd field for tar um i think james cameron may have something to say about this before the race is said and done he is at number seven here um yeah the real but, tar uh, yeah but yeah you, you certainly would expect you know spielberg to get in there I'd say the Daniels probably have a pretty good chance to because of what we're talking about with everything everywhere. Um, Sarah Polly, probably. Yeah, you know, the, thankfully, the Academy has started recognizing female directors. The last two winners of the Best uh, Director Oscar have been female. Um, and so, you know, if there's such a thing as a token female nomination, um, yeah, Sarah the, the token female to nominee line has also it. been winning, to your point, yeah, recently. Sure. Which sure. is the crazy part, but. Sarah okay. Polly would be the one in line for it, you know, ahead of Gina Prince by the wood, probably. Um, I, I guess Jane Campion. Yeah. Was she the only female nominee last year? Um, I feel like there was one other one, but I can't remember who. I feel like there's been. an obvious one that we're missing. Whatever. Life goes on. Yeah. Um, last year's Oscars, I try to block everything about it. Uh, by the way, Scott, um, Ole Parker in 55th place for uh, best director for he, he directed uh, Ticket to Paradise, the George Clooney, Julia Roberts film, would love personally to see the director of Mamma Mia. Here we go again, getting a Oscar nomination. You would. He's a uh, he's a uh, 55th. And you want to know who's just ahead of him in 54th, Scott? This will depress you probably. David O. Russell, probably. Uh, George Miller is all the way down in 54th. Don't, uh, why, why did you bring the energy onto this podcast? Why did you say that? <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Matt Reeves is at number 32. Just oh, but you know he's ahead of Matt Reeves. Stop at number it. 30. Stop. 
Actually, Olivia Wilde is at 30, and uh, and David O. Russell is at 31. <laughs> oh, they're ahead of Ryan Johnson also. <laughs> Um, okay, time to move. God, there's a, there's it is it is possible that this is the last episode of the podcast because I might kill myself. <laughs> what a way to go! Um, got Kate Blanchett leading the, the the pack for for Car and Best Actress, just ahead of Michelle Yeoh. I mean, I think those are the two best actress performances I've seen all year. So that's pretty cool that they are sitting one and two right now. Kate, Blanchett, have you seen Danielle Deadweiler? Michelle I guess Yeoh. you haven't yet. I've not. She's in fourth place. Michelle right. Williams. We're gonna see. I'm gonna see tomorrow in the Fablemans. Margot Robbie, um, you know, uh, she'll probably have something to say. Um, Margot Robbie, Viola Davis, um, you know, Olivia Coleman, somebody who you know you always expect to see there, but maybe because Empire of Light's been so poorly received, um, yeah, you know, not maybe. not gonna make the cut. On we the say we say that now, Scott, but then she's she's gonna freaking win for Empire of Light. <laughs> That'd be wild. Yeah, who knows? Ana de Armas, you know, talk about like a movie that just just torpedoed all of its chances, like for Oscars. Blonde, definitely. Um, you know, Ana de Armas playing Marilyn Monroe, you would have expected 10 times out of 10 for that to get nominated. Probably not going to happen, Scott. Definitely. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Tang Wei is going to sneak in for a decision to leave. I was wondering whether they would put her at Best Actress or Supporting Actress, but it looks like they do Probably have supporting. her. Supporting makes and, sense. No, well, they do have her in Best Actress right now. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, but she's in twelfth. But where's my, where's my girl J Law? I've heard Causeway. Yeah, mediocre. She's in ninth place right now. Um, so a little bit to overcome, especially like you said, because the the reception to that film has been a little bit mixed. But um, she's sure. certainly not out of it. Mia Goth in seventeenth again in a perfect world would be up there, but. Um, Alas, um, supporting Scott. Moving on, best actor again. We talked about Brendan Fraser. He's the odds-on favorite right now, ahead of Colin Farrell for the Banshees of Inisherin, Austin Butler for Elvis. I think you'd expect all of them to be in there. Bill Nye getting some buzz for Living, uh, which is the the British remake of Kurosawa's Ikiru. Um, that is starting to come out some places. I believe he's up there. And Hugh Jackman, you mentioned Scott, um, is currently sitting in fifth, but Tom Cruise is right behind him. I don't know. Could it happen, Scott? I'm I'm sorry, Scott. I I can't. I'm looking at the list now too. I can't take this list seriously when Will Smith is number seven on this list. I just I can't. You're not, we're not looking at we're not looking at the same list because he's at number ten for me. But, okay, he's at number. Uh, so it's so strange because everything that you've read so far has been the same yeah. as my list apparently, except for this. Uh, Will Smith, this list I'm looking at. Is he, are you not looking at Gold Derby? Um, yeah, I'm looking at the combined odds list. Oh, maybe I'm not you looking might, at You might be looking list. at just the experts or something like that. Oh, I bet I am. Yeah, that's definitely what it is. I'm just looking at experts. They have Will Smith at number seven, and he has a, he has one first place vote, apparently. And I want to know what critic has him at number one for winning the Oscar. <laughs> just could you imagine deranged <laughs> no way absolutely no way that that happens clip jim it out parsons jim parsons is on here for a spoiler alert which i learned was a real movie on friday um so that that bodes well for that um but hey billy eichner is probably punching air because it, there's another gay rom-com that's coming out so there you go i i think this one is maybe more of a rom-com but still i was having a reaction 
watching that like, oh, well, sorry, Billy. Um, Adam Sandler number eight on this list I'm looking at too. So I just think about I mean, continued wild I'm things. For it. And yeah. Robert Pattinson's on here at number 25. Um, yeah. Cooper, <laughs> I'm sorry, but he should not be anywhere near this list. Number 30. He's at number 30. Yeah. yeah, hell yeah, brother. Sam Worthington is on here for Avatar the Way. There's no way, man. There's no way. <laughs> Zach, I mean, Zach Efron. What movie is this for? <laughs> is this for the greatest beer? The greatest beer. Run. Okay, yeah. I was, all yeah. I could think of was Firestarter for this. You're like, no way is nominated <laughs> for Firestarter. Um, oh my god. Uh, best supporting actress, Jesse Buckley. We've talked about her. She's leading the pack for women talking. Right ahead of her, um, her women talking co-star, Claire Foy. Um, Carrie Condon, who we mentioned coming in in third right now, and then Stephanie Sue. Um, in fourth for everywhere, everything everywhere, and Hong Chow. We mentioned last week she's in a couple movies, but The Whale is the one that she's in uh, that is getting attention. She's in fifth. Jamie Lee Curtis, surely she's going to get pushed out. Um, there was like a lot of talk about her a couple of weeks ago in Everything Everywhere All at Once. I, I think it would be crazy. Like I think I, I'm sorry. I think it would be a bridge too far if we're nominating that performance for Best Supporting Actress. For what is going to be what is already a loaded category um, yeah you know you you look further down the list and you see like nina haas and knowing Merlant, and i hear really good things about dolly de leon in triangle of sadness um uh you heard correct brother um you know gabrielle union i know a lot of people like that performance and the in inspection um She's yeah. pretty far down there. Kristen it's, Stewart, unfortunately, not not close for Crimes of the Future. But um, wow, not I'll be honest, Scott. I liked that movie earlier this year. I haven't. You saying that movie is the first time I thought about that film in a couple months. That's a shame. Great movie, and it's out on Hulu now. So go and watch it. There you um, go. I will say. So Hong Chow. I assume that's for the. Is that for Kelly Reichert's movie? Yeah, the whale is the one that she's. God, she's having such a big year. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Michelle Yeoh is on here for Avatar The Way of <laughs> So is Kate Winslet, apparently. I mean, this is crazy, Scott. Zoe Saldana in Amsterdam is on here. It's not It's not Zoe Saldana for Avatar 2? No, I, I don't think so. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'd love... Why is Noemi Merlant in 58th? I'm sorry. That is crazy that she is this far down. Um, Wait, hold on. Hong Chao a second time is on this list, so that must yeah. be for Kelly Reichard's movie. <laughs> Adley Scott, 61 out of 61 on Andy here. Is Greta, Greta Gerwig in White oh. Noise. Is it? Oh, my um, list is Andy Taylor Joy. Interesting. Oh, she was much higher up on the one I'm looking at. but The fans um, love her. What, what can they say? Best Supporting Actor, Scott. Kihei Kwan leading the pack for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Brendan Gleeson. So there you go. There's your answer. He has been campaigned and supporting. Ben Wishaw in Women Talking. Paul Dano in The Fablemans. And Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans. Barry Keoghan coming in sixth, right? So he's right there. Brad Pitt in Babylon. Brian Tyree Henry, we mentioned Causeway. Yeah. And good Lord, Eddie Redmayne is, is on the here good nurse. for the good nurse. Yeah. Um, my God. Uh, underdog story, Toby Maguire at 12th, maybe. Maybe for he Babylon. gets in there for Babylon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark Rylance for Bones and All. Absolute, absolute wild performance. Chaos performance. Yeah, yeah. that's what I hear. Paul Dano is on here for the Batman. As well, Harry Styles, thirty fourth place. I don't know. What do you think? Does he have a chance? 
Is oh, he's just behind Robert De Niro in Amsterdam. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh, my God. God, why um, are we still talking about these movies? I'm not engaging. Colin Farrell for The Penguin? Let's go. Come on. Yeah. Give it to me. It's crazy to me that Miles Teller is getting campaigned pretty hard. Oh, Lord. Hold on. John David or... Washington in 14. Is that real? <laughs> I am, I'm about to throw myself off a building. <laughs> terrible. Man, this terrible performance. It's crazy. It's crazy. John Turturro for the Batman. He's on 70th out of 70. But um, I'm Jer- sure we could enter. Jeremy Strong, number 21. That. Ugh, come on, guys. We can do better than this. We could entertain ourselves all day, probably. Jeremy Strong should be so much higher than this. That's unbelievable. But, uh, you know, that gives you a good idea of sort of the the major players there. Um, you know, again, the Fablemans, obviously, leading the pack. Women talking, everything, everywhere, all at once. Tar, these are the movies that you expect are going to stick around. But Stranger Things have happened. You know, like, again, we're talking about the Fablemans as being top of the pack. But, like... Um, the movie that is at the top of the pack at this point in the year rarely ends up winning Best Picture. Like, yes. it always seems. Well, so there, there's so many alive. movies on here that feel like they haven't even really been considered yet. Yeah. I'll be honest. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It just it just feels like there's some missing movies. But maybe that's just because I like them in Oscars. Don't I don't know. We'll see. I wanted to look at the um, the best international film candidates, but they don't even have that on the page I'm looking at. So. I don't even think all the candidates have been submitted as the problem. Yeah, that might be the issue. But uh, yeah, unbelievable. Just scrolling. I'm just scrolling through these li- this list some more. I shouldn't have done this. Armageddon fifty five. Get out of here. The score list, and uh, I'm kind of sad that Decision to Leave is only coming in at twenty because that definitely has one of my favorite scores from this year. You know, I I really did enjoy the the score in Banshees. I'll say that much. Carter Burwell, I think I think it was. Carter Burwell never misses. I will admit I I did, don't recall the score in this movie a ton, but oh, it know, has such a memorable like key motif. I feel like also yeah, I probably remember Pinocchio it. is number nine. Please. Carter Burwell also scored three billboards. So Pinocchio, it's it's the Guillermo del Toro one, not the still Zemeckis one. Oh yeah, obviously. First off, <laughs> oh my god. Uh. Uh, all right, Scott, one. I think it's probably time to wrap up uh, yes. for this Someone episode. Save us. Again, we could entertain ourselves all day. but um, All right, uh, that should do it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton2013. For now, until Elon ruins everything. Uh, True. You can find me at Scarvy Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you haven't, you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope that you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we'll be reviewing uh, the final MCU entry of the year. Uh, it's Ryan Coogler's Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.